Lesson 12. On today, September the 24th, how should you relate to fellow Christians when your consciences disagree? It's kind of where it's been taking us. And this is where the book, as it says, turns from focusing on just you and your individual conscience and understanding things about conscience that we've gone over in fairly fine detail uh, to looking at how we are to relate to others. And I love the way they, they break this down. I think it makes it a little easier to understand But the issues of conscience, they naturally become much more intense and much more complex, you know, when you move into some sort of group dynamics, when you get, obviously, people coming together over particular issues, whether it's family or or certainly church family or or even others. So uh, it does get a little more wordy and a little more complex. We do certain practices that... uh, Another conscience does not allow, quite frankly. We do things, accept things, um, and that's where the rubber begins to meet the road. What the writers do here is they've come up with what they call a theology or, yeah, theological triage, okay? And you know what a triage is, don't you? Triage simply is the process of sorting out something according to priority, according to urgency, And you can take that principle and you can apply it to the Word of God. I know we got at least one nurse in here. knows what triage is, maybe others. And uh, we kind of take that approach with the Word to divide it out, parse it out so that we can see see it in different levels. Uh, And I think that's particularly important when you're talking about issues of conscience. Because some things are more important than others, okay? Everything in the Bible is, of course... Important, but some issues certainly require priority. We would agree with that regarding just, for instance, the simple gospel, uh, specific doctrinal issues that pertain to the gospel, things that we know are immovable when it comes to understanding uh, the gospel and all of its elements. So that's, that's important for us. We have an example of that. I know from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 3, you hear Paul talking about, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance, is the way it's best translated, as of first importance what I also received. So Paul's basically an example of that here, and he tells us, yeah, everything in the Word of God is important, okay? It's true, and yet there are some things that take priority, okay? They take priority. And we apply that thinking to looking at these different issues that we struggle with in conscience. So when it talks about a theological triage, it's talking about breaking these issues, if you will, breaking them out into at least three categories, three general categories. And I think that's, that's helpful to us. And we can, of course, begin to understand our differences a little bit better. And Even better than that, we begin to understand, you know, do I really want to die on this mountain, you know, this issue? Is it really that important? Is it a first level, a second level, or a third level issue that if I keep on about this, it's just going to cause more problems than anything, and it just doesn't really matter in the scheme of things? And of course, we know too that it's up to the power of the Holy Spirit, it's up to the power of God's Word in a person's life to change them, if you will, over an issue or to convince them over an issue. 
that we may hold is, is true and applicable in our Christian life, but they may not. So we have to leave room for that, certainly. So, theological triage. Theological triage. Now, writers give us three levels. The first, he calls the first one simply first-level issues. And, of course, these are, just as you would expect, these are the most central and essential issues to Christianity. And if I ask you to, to make a list... Uh, you know, over things that, you know, you just can't deny if you want to claim to be a Christian according to what the Bible says. You'd, of course, make reference to the Trinity. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you find the Trinity, okay, throughout. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus is, was fully God and He was fully man at the same time in His incarnation. We know that Jesus sacrificially died for everybody who receives Him, for everybody who comes to Him in faith and repentance. And He is the only sacrifice. We know that. We know that He rose bodily. He rose bodily from the dead. This has to be believed and received. Why? Because of the testimony of Scripture. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Paul says, those are the ones who come with Him. Justification, of course, is by grace through faith alone. A serious, essential, central, doctrinal issue. And then, of course, we know that He's coming back, right? Is He coming back? We know that. Now, we may differ on when He's coming back. You know, certainly there are different uh, opinions about that. People hold to that dearly. But the most important thing is that He's coming back, right? I like this one. This is a good example. So we know that those are doctrinal issues uh, that are central, that are essential to Christianity. These are the ones that you can categorize as first-level issues. These are things that we don't bend on. These are, these, these are, as I said earlier, these are hills, if you will, that we want to die on. To, die, to deny these would be to deny the faith, okay? So they're key doctrines for the church and for true believers. Now, now... Would you count the sufficiency of Scripture and the inerrancy? Sir, yeah. Believing, yeah, the sufficiency, the inerrancy of Scripture, that it is the Word of God, certainly. So, secondary issues, secondary levels, these create reasonable boundaries between Christians. We say reasonable boundaries because if you're on one side or the other, you can at least go and find Scripture, okay? You may, you may be in a situation where it doesn't seem like there's uh, a level of completeness that would allow you to embrace, you know, a certain truth. And that depends largely on where we are in our study sometimes, how much we understand, how far we're willing to go with that. So without a doubt, people are going to be at different places in that, right? They're going to be at different places. That's why it is so important to have somebody, you know, and I'll, you know, the, the primary or the teaching pastor or whatever, someone who's dedicated their life to this very thing. And that is to know the Word of God, to dig into the Word of God. And as we uh, uh, support, you know, in our fellowship, knowing the original languages, being able to get in there and, and dial it up 
and to look at it and to look at it not only from its linguistic point of view, but from its historical point of view, from the cultural point of view, and to do the hard work of looking at, well, how many times is this word or this phrase used? And what is the context when this is used? And this is where Bible learning, you know, really, really does its best for us. I mean, uh, and we can say we hold this position or we believe this because that's what the Bible says. And then, of course, it takes us so far beyond just the English translation, doesn't it? So far beyond. I mentioned this last night. We had a um, social get-together and was talking to some brothers there and, was, and uh, had shared about going through First John with my community group and how if you read First John, you know, particularly as a young believer, and you start looking at all that and you get into those verses where it says, if you sin, you're not a Christian. Okay, you know, you just wind up not blinking there in your bed at night looking up. But you have to, to go and study those words and understand what he's talking about when he talks about practicing sin and so forth, that English word that we see, what does that mean? It's talking about a repetitive, habitual practice. It's talking about something or, or uh, actions that, cate- that, that define us. It's who we are. It's the direction we're going. You know, it's so much, uh, so much more important to, to see it uh, with some clarity from the original language. I can't do that, as, as I often say, and I don't make any bones about it. Uh, your Sunday school teacher can't do that. I have to go to the commentaries. I don't read Greek and I don't read Hebrew. But I'm so thankful <laughs> for those who do. Yeah. And they can make it clear. Even with that, you still have some areas, do you not, where people are going to fall on one side of it or the other. You're always going to have that. That's never going to change. It's never going to change. So how do we get through that on these secondary issues? And I've missed some of them here. He refers to them where reasonable boundaries exist. And again, those that can be supported, at least in part by Scripture. Baptism, church government, sovereignty and salvation, the role of men and women in the church and the home. So many other things that have resulted in really over the years in what? Denominations, I guess you could say. So it's important for us to be able to do that. I... I like believing and understanding that the absolute best we can do is to have an open heart about digging into the Scripture, wanting to know what it says, because what it says is what it means. This is the sufficiency of Scripture is what it's all about. We take that away, and what do we have? We don't have anything. You know, do, we, do we truly believe, as I prayed, that Jesus is the living Word of God? That Word is important. That Word which Peter refers to is the incorruptible seed that, that borns us into the family of God. That is so important. So we want to know that. We want to know what it means. We want to know of its impact on our life and to be able to give ourselves totally over to that. Not just because somebody said this or somebody said that, But from our understanding of the Word of God, as best as we can do, this is the direction we're going. And as we've discovered in looking through these issues of conscience, particularly where somebody, uh, you know, is holding a particular view of conscience and doesn't want to let go. Again, we look at the example of eating meat offered to idols. Again, and you'll see it again today. Paul doesn't beat on that person. He doesn't, he doesn't come down on them. He doesn't say, well, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. Because that is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And you want somebody's confidence to be in the Word of God. So the best that we can do, without belaboring any further, is to know the Word and to be able to talk about the Word regarding a particular issue of conscience or most often an issue of, of doctrine. So it's more challenging for the church, he says, to have unity when those in the church disagree on these matters. And we're talking about these matters, these secondary level issues. So what we, uh, I'll say, guard against or sometimes fight against is clarity in the Word. What does the Word of God say and how does it apply? How does it apply to a particular situation? Well, third level issues. He describes as issues that are simply disputable matters. Sometimes matters that are, that are you know, referred to as indifference or just simply matters of, of conscience. We've used the term matters of preference sometimes. But always based upon what we understand about the Word. And just quite simply, there's often more than one viable view about these things. And a lot of people bring perhaps what they were taught as kids, what their parents taught them, certainly what their present church and fellowship is teaching them, wherever they are in their uh, study of Scripture, their understanding of Scripture as a whole, they're going to hold a particular view, and it may not be the same as yours. Issues like biblical interpretation, uh, how Christians view the Sabbath might be one. How about commercial purchases on Sunday, the Lord's Day? How do people feel about that? Y'all don't have an issue with it, do you? Eat, eat dinner somewhere after church a lot of times. I remember it set me to thinking years ago at my former church, uh, we had a, a revival scheduled and the, uh, I forget, there was some sort of emergency or medical issue and the, the preacher that they had coming for the revival couldn't make it, so they got another guy to come. And man, <laughs> they should have looked a little longer. Uh, but this guy, he started talking about right out of the chute, very emotional fella, uh, that he didn't know, and I think I might have shared this, but he didn't know if the Lord was going to bless his efforts in preaching that revival because he had bought gas on Sunday. Okay. I see where we're going with this. Uh, he also went so far as to share, and I know I didn't share this, they had a, I forget if it was a daughter or a granddaughter living with them, and she wanted to go to like the prom. And they, didn't, they would not let her go to any kind of a dance. And he said that the mother, the grandmother, whichever one it was, these, I'm sure these people are gone on now, but she said when the girl was leaving, the, the, the mother laid down in front of the front door and said, if you're going to go to this dance, you're going to step over me to do it. And just to give you an example of how, how some people are truly, truly believe, you know, some of these issues. They don't make any allowances whatsoever, whatsoever for a differing opinion. Now, these are the kind of folks that you don't say, no, you don't do that. And you might share that in a loving way, and we certainly should, right? That's what we want to do. But it has to be the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And I trust, to a large degree, our godly example in talking to them that encourages them. Look, what do you do? You don't do it because I say it. Do it because you believe that's what the Word of God says. And that's what Paul allows for. And if I can paraphrase, he says in Romans 14, he says, we, we stand before God on these issues. And if we do them, we do them for His sake. If we don't do them, we do them for His sake. And God is pleased with that. He's pleased with that. I wish it's salvation that all knowledge had come into my mind and heart. Don't you? 
oh, wouldn't the, wouldn't the ride be so much, so much better? But it didn't happen that way. And it's never going to happen that way. And if it did, it wouldn't provide opportunity for us in the church who are supposed to be loving, okay? Supposed to be caring about the other person more than we care about ourselves. There wouldn't be any opportunities to manifest that, to let that bloom. It wouldn't happen. How's that? We still talk to them? I mean, do we still talk to them about whether we talk to them and try to help them to see? Yeah, that's what I said. We, you know, like speaking the word in love and so forth. We still tell them that. But our our, uh, emotions and our ability to convince, you know, it's not a debate. It's not debating principles to be applied. It's just simply telling them the truth and letting the word of God, you know, melt into them. That's the way that happens. Would you agree with that? Is there another way that that can effectively happen, realistically? No, we do that. I think you have to use, you know, in considering the other person, it doesn't take long in talking to them to realize how far along they are in really wanting to know the truth about something, or is it more important to them to just embrace this this issue that they're holding on to because it was dear to mom and dad, or it was dear to their grandparents, or it's related to some significant emotional event in their life or whatever, you know. Only the Word of God and the Spirit of God can break them free from that. So that's what you do. No. Any more confusion? I don't want to confuse anything else. Yeah. Um, I think the reality is in this I guess setting, if you want to call it, we all come from that. Sure we do. Right? Um, we've all had different views, uh in Christ, Pretty much, and somebody came by our side in, in a discipleship type of way to teach us the Word of God so that we can understand it clearly and be able to go forth and teach somebody else who may have a immature view, in a sense, or, 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 or a distorted view. Yeah. Again, that's why it's... A milky reformed. view. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, that's why it's Reformed theology, right? Yeah. Because a lot of what's being preached is default, so to speak. It's a false hope. It's, yeah. it's, it's more for what's for you rather than living for the glory of God. So yeah. Just hearing you, it's, it's absolutely true. Like, where do you draw the line? But again, if if it is a correction, are you doing it in love? Or right. are you doing it in pride to say, well, I've heard this, so let me come down on somebody else because they don't know. Yeah, a desire to be effective with this takes us immediately to how we treat people. It takes me to Proverbs. And you look at those verses, certainly about telling the truth and being rightly motivated, but it talks about hearing a matter and all of a matter before you make an opinion. You know, a little deeper, caring enough about another person, not just waiting for an opportunity to get your next set of you know, sentences in, but listening to them and trying to find out, quite frankly, why they think like that. Why is it so important? And it may be, you know, what they call substitutionary. They have to hold on to that because it's related to something so significant in their, in their life, you know. And it could be anything. It could be anything. So, yeah, that's good. But disagreement here should not cause disunity in the church, not with these third-level issues. We'll never get rid of this. It won't ever be that way. The Bible speaks of the time when we all come into the knowledge, you know, the unity of truth. We'll all get there one day. But as long as we're flesh and as long as we're limited, we're not going to see everything clearly. 
Have you ever wondered what it's going to be revealed to you and to me but as individuals? What's going to change when we're before, before Christ? How clearly are we going to see certain issues? Do you really think this is going to be something that you hold to that's going to kind of be turned on its head or whatever? I don't know. It's a good, good way to think about it. It's a good way for us to go back and examine you know, the, the commitments that we have in our heart about Scripture and about doctrine and so forth. All we can say is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, help my ignorance. Show me. That's what your life is about in Christ and moving forward to, for Him, becoming more like Him and Him accomplishing, as He said, what He started, He's going to finish. That's what it's about. It's a pursuit of knowing Him. And we know that most clearly through His Word. No two humans, and all humans are finite, all humans are fallen, will ever agree absolutely on everything. They had not even godly husbands and godly wives, do they? No amens? We know that's true, don't we? Because we're people, and we come from different places with different experiences. The same is true, as he says, in a godly or even a godly or a healthy church, there will be disagreements. There will be disagreements. We're to move forward, first and foremost, with Christ as our goal, with the truth of God's Word as our goal in every circumstance. When you start, when you start getting away from that, if selfishness creeps in or whatever, if pride creeps in, that's the work of the devil himself. And bad things will happen. Now, he says we can almost always be best viewed, or this issue can be best viewed in the context of the strong and the weak. We've looked at this, particularly when we look at this issue of eating the meat and so forth back in the day, offered to idols. So those are issues of consciousness, whether or not to do that. That's back in Romans 14, and it ended in, in Romans 15, 7 there. You'll remember that the Jewish Christians did not want to eat the meat because of the restrictions in the Torah. Okay, they didn't want to do that. That had been a part of their life. That's what they had been taught. You know, right, wrong, or indifferent. That's what they knew. Christians from pagan backgrounds, they would say that eating the meat would identify them with the old life and the old practices. They didn't want to do that. Paul jumps in on that and he says, we know that that don't matter. That's what he says. We know that there are no other gods. We know that that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you ate it or not. But he said, your brother doesn't know that. He doesn't understand that. And ordering him to be different is not going to change his heart. I know that as a manager, okay, in my past life in the police department. No. And as I've said, you can change somebody's behavior, but to change the way they think about something, that's a totally different thing. Totally different. The early Christians in Rome also had issues, and he mentions two other things. He, you know, there were other things. It wasn't just eating the meat. It was the holy days, when to do what to observe these holy days. They even brought up the issues about drinking wine. Okay, there were different issues that they looked at back then. He mentions those in chapter 14, verses 17 and verse 21. And then Paul, or as we could more accurately say, the Holy Spirit, if you will, purpose in writing that whole section was to bring the church together, to provide healing for the church. Paul recognized that. He knew that there were people that came from all over that had all these different backgrounds. And all, you know, he's addressing people who were genuine believers. He didn't have a reason to question that. But they're at different levels of spiritual maturity in their life. 
That's never going to change for us. We're constantly going to be rubbing elbows and socializing and meeting with people and in the church uh, evaluating people for service and to teach and to do all these things. We have to make those judgments as a church. We can't do that apart from agreeing on certain things in the Word of God. We can't do that. So that's always where we go. Now, the rest of this chapter... Uh, is quite wordy. I looked at it and I just came up with a, two or three titles. We want to look just briefly at the conviction that people have. We want to look at the problems that that caused. And then we want to look at the potential heresies that come out of that. And I'll just give this to you to kind of move us toward closing this out. The strong conscience says that everything belongs to God so that we can eat anything we want. That would be what the stronger conscience would say in this context about eating the meat sacrificed to idols. The weaker conscience would say, we want to keep some of our previous food restrictions, whichever side you're on, you know. Uh, That would be important to them because they're not quite there. They can't let go of that yet. And in its context, in its applicability, if you will, it would apply to other things, you know, in your life. Again, doesn't have to be eating meat offered to idols. So people come with different convictions for different reasons. And then, of course, the problem comes when, for instance, the strong say, well, I have freedom to eat meat, and those who don't eat meat are being unreasonable and are theologically in error. Okay, well, they may be theologically in error, but coming down on them and accusing them of being unreasonable because they don't see it like you do is not going to be helpful, right? That's not going to work. Not going to work at all. Or the weak conscience might say, we want to keep. We want to keep. No, I'm sorry. The weak conscience would say, it's sinful to eat meat, and Christians who do so are being unfaithful to God. So you got one on one hand who's just displaying arrogance, which God is not happy with because the root of that is what? Pride. And then you've got people who are just simply being judgmental about what they're doing and saying. Okay? He would say in Romans 14, 4a, and again in 10a, who are you to judge another's servant? Who do you think you are? Do you have all knowledge and all insight about where this person is, where they're from? How could you even begin to think that you could change them? Well, I know what the Bible says. I know what it means to me. Okay, well, yeah, and you may be right. But you can't make that change. You can't do that. But speaking the truth in love, being correct, being able to bring it to bear on that particular issue will do it and can do it. And it may take time sometimes. You know, I can assure you I was very sincere about wanting to know Christ and and know His Word uh, from the time I was about 18 up to about, you know, what would I be? About 38 or 40. I was just as sincere then as I am now. But I was an Arminian, okay? I was. And I could take you to task on some of those issues. Not that it something that dominated my life. It's just some things that come into my life, different people and so forth at some time. Yeah. So what changed? What changed? Somebody beating on me, pounding on me? You know, no. No. Somewhere, a couple of friends perhaps praying for me. God opening up in His Word saying, Mike, if you're willing to move on this, if you're willing to accept this and move forward and trust Me, then I'll open up other avenues within your life. 
I'll do that. I see that as a big part in, in my transformation and my continual sanctification, you will, my continual growth in understanding Scripture. You know, that's very, very important. It's the work of Christ. And I don't, I don't want to take that away from Him because that, that represents His love for me. That's, as we like to say sometimes, my personal relationship with Him. He's manifested Himself to me in that way by bringing me along, you know, by showing me things at the right time, by challenging me at the right time in my life to change my thinking about something. So I'm thankful for that. Now, these, these are the kind of issues, certainly anything where arrogance or a judgmental attitude could erupt. These are the things that, quite frankly, the devil's always looking for. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for a crack. He's looking for an opportunity, even in a fellowship, in a family, in a life or whatever, to erode our commitments. And remember, it's a dangerous thing for a person to move away from the convictions of their conscience when they're not not sure, when they move for the wrong reason because of pressure, that comes from someone. Paul said plainly, when you do that and you sin against your brother or sister, he says, you sin against Christ when you do that. He must do the work. And it must be because of the impact of God's Word upon their heart. So, how does heresy come out of this? How does heresy come out of it? Well, regarding the strong, they say, for instance, here's a good example with the meat. I, I have freedom not only to eat meat, but to go to parties at idol temples. Yeah. It's a sort of a slippery slope for them because their heart's not pure on wanting to know and do the Word of God. In other words, they see an avenue of flexibility here that might let them move toward what they really want to do to feed this thing that's still in them. Yeah, I have freedom not only to eat meat, but to go to the parties as well over there at the idol temple when there's Scripture that would tell us, no, you don't do that. You don't do that. And this view distorts, as they say, the gospel by what they call lawless subtraction. You take something out. You make an allowance for something that's clearly in Scripture. This is a deception. This is a blindness that comes over, folks. Why? Because what they want is really something different. <laughs> okay? They want to satisfy something in the flesh, something of their own doing. It could be a pride or whatever. That's what they want to do. 1 Corinthians 10, 20, 22. Rather that, Paul says that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God and do not want you to have fellowship with demons, Paul says. Just an example. The Word would speak against that. Somebody who has that type of attitude. No, there are restrictions. The weak might say, on the other hand, you must follow the Old Testament dietary restrictions if you want to be a Christian. This view distorts the gospel, and it's what they refer to as a legalistic addition. So you had a lawless subtraction, now you have a legalistic addition. Just to give it a name and to, to narrow it down a bit. Acts 15.5, he says it is necessary, it said, they said it's necessary to circumcise them and to com- command them to keep the law of Moses. You know, back in Acts 15 is what it's talking about at the excuse me, the Jerusalem council there. They wanted to add something because it suited them. You have to go back and say, well, what was the motivation for that? 
Were there people there over that issue wanting these new Gentile uh, believers to do what Jews had done for, for so many years? Why did they want them to do that? What could have been their motivations? Did some of them truly believe that that's what the Word of God required of them? Could they have truly believed that? Maybe they weren't malicious about it, but they said this is what the Word of God says, you know, back in the the Old Testament. And they were just sticking to that. They thought they were being true to that. They didn't clearly understand the fullness of God's grace and mercy. The liberties that we have, that that had been done away with. They didn't understand what that meant at the time, really. They just understood it as a commandment of God. And yet Christ says it simply. He's come, he's, he, he's fulfilled it. He has fulfilled it. How will a person ever get to that point where they will accept that? Somebody beating and pounding on them with the Word of God? No. When the glorious Word of God, the truth of God, through the Spirit of God, moves their heart, moves their heart. That's, that's, why, that's why our religion is different in part. There's power in that because it's the truth it's the truth. We have to allow for that work. So again I say, remember, Paul makes no explicit command for people to eat the meat in view of the greater principle concerning not going against your conscience. You can go back and read about that again in Romans 14.23 if you want. I've marked something that I, I wanted to read here. It just says it better than I can. Page 92... 93, they refer to this guy, I don't really have all of his credentials, a guy named Doug Moo who contributed to some of the information in this book. He says one of the most important points of Romans 14 is something that Paul does not say, that the weak in faith must change their view. He makes clear that he does not agree with them, and by labeling them weak, he implies also that they have no that they have room to grow rather on these matters. But he does not tell them to change their mind. He does not berate them for being immature. He does not tell them to get with the program. Yet this is usually our first reaction to someone who differs with us. We want to change their minds to convince them that we are right. And Paul would undoubtedly support the church's efforts to educate its members as fully as possible about the gospel and its implications. But he is wise enough to know that there is a time and a place for such efforts. All of us have our traditions, and they are not easy to give up. As long as they are not contrary to the gospel and hinder the work of the church, we should learn to tolerate these differences. Do you know of examples in our own fellowship where you're required to do that in your interactions and uh, social interactions and so forth with other folks? I mean, we, we draw people here from all over, okay? And I think by and large, most of them come because we are, you know, a Reformed Theology Fellowship. But with that, they bring with them all kinds of, of things, okay, with them. So, that's what we look at. We just simply want to be loving and submissive to Christ in these issues. And that's a good segue because that's the way Paul closes it out. He talks about the solution of love. That must be our motivation in dealing with these things. And he break, the writers break this out uh, fairly well. They talk first, they give two examples from the strong conscience. 
the first one I'm going to give you is not what I refer to as the highest road to take, but they both deal with the strong conscience. Listen, he talks about with the strong conscience, you have a person who's fully persuaded based upon the Word of God. They are welcoming, not consending, condescending rather, to the weaker. That's not part of what they do. They're aware of freedom, but they welcome the disagreeing. They're leaving room for the work of the Spirit. They're leaving room for the Word of God to do its work. And he says that the result of this is that the gospel is revealed. This is the character that the gospel itself would have us put forth because it shows that we're concerned mostly about the other individual. And then I think we can bump it up a step, and I refer to this as the high road because it's still talking about the person with the strong conscience. It's another group. This would be the person who is free but flexible on disputable matters. Their goal is to edify believers and to advance the gospel. That's first and foremost in their mind. From 1 Corinthians 9.19, Paul says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I'm sorry, that's 1 Corinthians 9.22b. And then I added uh, 9.19 which says, For those I am free... For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. He says pretty much the same thing twice. That's where he was coming from. Can you imagine the challenge that the Apostle Paul had? And if you know anything about what the Middle East was like then, all the different cultures, people coming to Christ with all kinds of backgrounds, and then trying to pull these people together in a church, in a fellowship, like killing each other, you know, It's interesting. It's very interesting. And only the presence of Christ Himself can accomplish that. We move left or right. We we get out of center with that. It ain't going to happen. And even in that, it takes time. Many times, it takes time for people to come together on certain issues. So, I call that the high road. And he says, here the gospel isn't just revealed, the gospel is magnified. That has to be our goal, and he works through us. And then he gives some characteristics of the weak conscience regarding this. He says, here, that conscience is fully persuaded, right? That conscience is just as committed. It may be wrong, okay, but it's just as committed. And of course, we're not talking about those primary doctrinal issues, So they're fully persuaded. They're welcoming and not judging of those who differ. See, not being judgmental. They're they're abstaining, as it often says, for the glory of God. That's what Paul referred to. You know, those who do and those who don't both are doing what they do for the glory of God. And that is the ultimate test. And that's what they're doing, even though their conscience is weak over an issue, even though they don't have it clear regarding the Word of God, well, what's the result of that? Still, the gospel will be revealed because they're open to that. Those dealing with them can reveal the gospel as well. He says, just simply don't cause your brother to stumble. And we see that word stumble or stumbling several times. And I marked four of them beginning in Romans 14, 13, he says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Make up your mind about this, he says, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. That should be our motivation. 
And then quickly, it is good, where we're at now, 14.21, he says, it is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. In assessing this, the only way that can happen is if we're mindful of that person. What are their needs? Where are they in their ability to understand what we're talking about here? Or is it just another opportunity for me to broadcast what I think? Because I'm right. I know that's what the Bible says, you know. If that's our motivation, that's not going to be effective. Thirdly, we look at 1 Corinthians 8 9. He says, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians 8.13, Therefore he says, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble stumble so that's four verses and five uses of that word as it's translated that's to guide how we think is that really what we're thinking about when we're pressing a point about secondary or third uh third level issues in the church where are we coming from he would go on and add do not destroy with your food the one for whom christ died We're to pursue righteousness, he says in the following verses. We're to pursue righteousness. We're to pursue peace. We're to pursue joy. From verse 17 and then in 19, he he mentions peace again and talks about edification, as we know. And that's the word that's translated from that phrase that talks about building somebody up. That's the mind that we have to have adopted if we're to be effective in sharing our faith and helping people to move along in their growth in their sanctification. We then, he says, who are strong, ought to bear the scruples of the weak. And you remember when we looked at that verse, that really means the weaknesses of the weak. Because they can be trying sometimes, right? And sometimes when we're trying to make a point, we want to you know, step away and walk away. Why don't you see that? It's clear as a bell. I got it. Why can't you get it? You know, that don't work. It just doesn't work. No, it doesn't allow that's what we want to do. We want to think about the other one. So we bear with the scruples of the weak, he says. Let me continue. And not to please ourselves. That's the motivation that takes us away from that. We just want to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification, that which builds up. Well, I'm going to rattle off. And I'm at, I'm at the end here because this brings it all together. I'm going to rattle these off. And if you want to copy of it i'll get it to you real quick these are the points that have come out of this study i will there are scripture references here if you need them but he says welcome those who disagree with you okay those who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't thirdly those who whose conscience restricts must not be judgmental toward those who have freedom Number four, each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. Five, assume that others are partaking or refraining for the glory of God. That should be our first assumption. Six, do not judge each other in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God. We talked at length about how important that was to see ourselves as accountable. Seven, your freedom to eat meat is correct but do not let your freedom destroy the faith of another weaker brother. And you can just substitute in there whatever the issue is. 
Number eight, disagreements about eating and drinking are not important in the kingdom of God. Building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy is the important thing from Romans 14, 16 through 21. If you have freedom, number nine, if you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. Ten, a person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. That's what the Word of God says, and we certainly want to be in line with that. Eleven, we must follow the example of Christ who put others first, first and foremost. And then lastly, from the study he adds, we bring glory to God when we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Let's pray together.